Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament preaching podcast for everyone who loves the Bible. I'm Rachel Wren. You mixed it up there, changing the intro. I did. It's a, you know, we're almost in a new year. Goodbye 2020. I thought we'd give it a little twist. All right. I can go with that. And I'm Tim McNinch. This week, we're bringing you scholarly preaching insights for one of the least attended Sundays of the year. I wonder what percentage of pastors take this Sunday off. What do you think, Rachel? I know. A high number. I mean, at least a third, if not probably more. You've got a lot of tired preachers on the last Sunday of December. So true. Well, if, if you're one of those tired preachers who's still plugging away and is looking for a little sermon juice after being squeezed dry by Advent and Christmas, never fear. We've got some insights for you today. What do you have for us, Rachel? Well, um, one of the juicy things I'm going to offer is actually to not preach on the lectionary scheduled first reading. That, uh, um, this is the first reading podcast, right? <laughs> Yeah, I know, I know. Okay, but hear me out. So Isaiah 61 was one of the scheduled Advent texts for this year. And it's just not easy to come up with a sermon on a same text in such short notice, even if it does, you know, the lectionary does give you a couple more verses, but not a whole lot. Mm-hmm. So um, my suggestion is going to be to do something that mirrors what, in my experiences, a lot of churches tend to do on this type of Sunday which is a lessons and carols service. Uh, is that something is that something you would do in your church background, Tim? Not not growing up, but uh since I've entered Presbyterian world, we do lessons and carols from time to time. In fact, I'm I'm helping to lead one with the youth of our church this year. Oh, lovely. That's awesome. Is it mm-hmm. is it going to be the Sunday after Christmas? Sunday before Christmas. Oh, going rogue. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, so if people are in your shoes, then they might still have to preach on the Sunday after Christmas, or they might be doing pulpit supply for all those pastors who are taking vacation. (laughs) Right. So for those preachers, my recommendation is to not do the Isaiah 61 text, which we've just had. Instead, my suggestion is to preach the psalm. Ah, the psalm. Let's see, that would be this week, Psalm 148, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, <laughs> psalm 148 is kind of a hard one to preach, isn't it? It's just like all of this praise. It's just a litany, right? Right, exactly. And I actually think that because that's what it is, it's the perfect text to be preaching the Sunday after Christmas. Because, okay, so hear me out here. One of the things that I think is so enticing to people about Christmas is this idea, the concept of the divine coming down. And I know, okay, right? That sounds very basic, but just just like hover with me there for a second. It's this whole idea that for a brief moment, that veil between things sacred and things profane is drawn aside just for a second. And in that instant, somehow both things are changed. So the profane touches the sacred in in such a way that produces a human child, and the sacred comes in contact with the profane that causes stuff to happen here on earth, like angels appearing, a whole host of them. And we're going to talk about that Hebrew word Mm -hmm. for host in just a minute. A star jumps out of its orbit and broods over a little city. 
women who are going about their business find themselves heavy with new life. And I think it's all of these reasons, in my opinion, that we've started to call Christmas magical. It's because we don't quite know how to describe that fissure point, that cleft between the divine and the human that causes things to change. I love that. I think that's a great description of this. But how does that connect to Psalm 148? I'm still not okay. seeing the connection. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll get there. All right. So Psalm 148, in my mind, describes that fissure. It, hmm. it gives language to the thing we're struggling to know how to say. It's like an encapsulation of the moment when creation bucked and the heavens danced, like right before everything went back to normal. It's like the song that I imagine the angels singing right from the first word of the psalm, hallelujah. And I know we've talked about this word before, but just in case you've forgotten, it's the imperative form of the verb halal. Halal means to praise, and imperative is a form of a verb, which means do it. So the end of hallelujah is the word yah, which is a shortened form of the name God. So hallelujah very simply means praise God, do it, praise God. I'll do it. I'll do it. Okay. All right. So what's so neat about this psalm is that this imperative to praise God runs throughout the whole thing. And it actually starts in a top down motion. So if you're picturing a fissure, like a, a cleft in the space between the sacred and the profane, imagine it starting at a top, like a sliver of light appearing in a cracking boulder. It starts at the very top, in the very heavens, in verses 1 through 4. It names all the celestial beings and orbs that dwell above our heads. And verse 3 is really nice for connecting it to Christmas. It reads, Halaluhu kol malachav. Halaluhu kol tzva'av. So praise him, all his angels or messengers. Praise him, all his host. So that word, the last word of the sentence, tzava, is the word that we translate as host. And for a long time, and I think this is something that happened when I was a kid and just never really got dislodged from my brain, but until quite recently, I kind of thought a host just as something that meant a whole lot of something. Mm, and in yeah, Hebrew, yeah. you know, it, it can mean that, like an organized body of something, but it can also mean army. So yeah, praise totally. God, all you army of celestial beings. And, and one of the reasons I love this is because Luke says that the shepherds were terrified when suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of the heavenly host. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I can sort of picture this army of angels armed to the <laughs> hilt. <laughs> yeah. I'd be I'd be scared too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and that not only connects it to Christmas, but it gives you a sense of the scope of praise that's being demanded by this psalm. According to the speaker, no heavenly stone is exempt from giving praise to God. And the speaker gives the reason for that in verses five through six, because God created them and set them as this eternal order that shall never be shaken. But then the psalm moves directly to things that are not eternal, that are in fact exceedingly momentary and exceedingly ordinary. Sea monsters, ocean depths, fire, hail, snow and smoke, storm wind, mountains, trees, birds and beasts of every kind. 
all of that vast, beautiful chaos that God brought to life is called upon to praise the Lord. And only then do we get to humans. Mm-hmm. There's something really beautiful about that movement, in there, isn't there? You, you would imagine, you know, in kind of our minds as, as humans, that it would go from the celestial beings to the humans to the animals to the created order, right? Mm-hmm. Right, right. But it, it inverts that. It starts at the celestial beings, then it goes to the created order, and only then it goes to humans. Now, once we get to humans, it continues in that hierarchical order It calls upon kings to praise God, then princes, then judges. And then we get to something absolutely delightful. Because in this pan, in this song of praise, we've heard so far all these things that are very either important, like celestial beings and kings and princes, or very powerful, like all these swirling orders of chaos. But the next bodies who are called to praise God are youths and maidens old and young. And what's so lovely about that is it's those who seem the least important, the least influential, even the most vulnerable. And does that remind you in any way of the Christmas story, Tim? Yeah, definitely. The the vulnerable, the lowly are the ones that are drawn into the the story of the coming of Jesus. Exactly. Elderly Elizabeth, who's great with child, young Mary, who sings the Magnificat, the song of power and triumph, their voices are called upon to praise the Lord. And in verse 14, we learn it's because God has done great things for the people who are close to him. And this is a really interesting verse. So I want to just pause over it real quick because I find it fascinating. And I think it's helpful to kind of talk through a little bit. It talks about God has exalted the horn of God's people. That's a phrase that we use in the churchly world, and we know it means like make great in some way. But if you think about that, like what in the world is going on there? What's the horn? Whose horn is it? Is it a horn like a cup? Is it a horn like an animal? What does it mean to exalt a horn? Are you like (laughs) cheering someone or doing cheers? Like it doesn't make sense. So I looked it up a little bit, and Eric Zanger is a psalm scholar, and he says this in his commentary. He says the psalm here adopts a widely attested metaphor stemming from the animal world, where horns lifted high, especially by wild bulls, signal not only fighting strength and superiority, but as the animal walks, also reveal its dignity and beauty. Both evoke fascination and fear at the same time. So this psalm is picturing God as a wild bull, raising up its horns in protection and triumph for his herd, his people who are close to him. So the psalm pictures the people who have been drawn close to a terrifyingly magnificent deity. And what's beautiful about this is if you place this psalm in conversation with Christmas, the image flips. Because now... Instead of seeing a people drawn close to a terrifying deity, we think of a deity being drawn close to its mother's breast. And if you imagine seeing both of those images at the same time, it's the moment when the divine touched the earth at Christmas that brings both of those into conversation together. It's just this really lovely picture and just kind of this perfect Christmas psalm. Something you might say hallelujah about. 
Yay! Well done. Well done. Hallelujah. <laughs> Well, awesome. Thank you for bringing this psalm to our attention so that this could be something that preachers could actually use on this particular week to tie the Old Testament readings to the celebration of Christmas. Well done. Yeah, absolutely. I hope you do. I think it'd be fun for for your folks and for you too as you're out of sermon juice. So good luck, good preachers. (laughs) Definitely. Well, as always, you can find our past episodes on the website, firstreadingpodcast.com. We're also doing some stuff on our Facebook page, so you can check us out there. And if you want, that's an easy place to also comment and, you know, start a little conversation with us about all this good stuff. So check out First Reading on the Facebook. Until next time, I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. Merry Christmas. 